Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Welcome to episode five of In the Landscape. It's so exciting to be recording our fifth episode. We have listeners all over. We're finding North America, Canada, South America, Europe, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. We're excited that people are out there enjoying our conversation. Absolutely. It's been fun for us to get together and record some of these. And we've covered a small range of topics so far, but we have lots of episodes planned. And today our topic is going to be all about irrigation. Since we are talking about regions all over the world and certainly all over the all over North America where we work, we may talk about a few different types of climate in which the irrigation is going to be different from, from other places. So if we're not speaking directly to you in this episode, certainly there are principles I think that will apply anywhere. And if you are from some of these great places around the world, we look forward to covering topics that are local to you because we're certainly interested in gardens just about everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and visiting them too. <laughs> exactly. All right. So let's dive in with a little bit of the history of water because we have visited some gorgeous gardens over in Europe and elsewhere. And a big feature certainly historically was water. You know, how do you irrigate the hanging gardens of Babylon and and whatnot? So can you talk a little bit about that? By doing some landscape history research, cultural landscape history, Andre Lenot in France and Capability Brown in England were two different time periods historically. And so when you dive into their these great landscapes that were created for nobility, some of them became parks. So there were large tracts of land. The similarities were the land that was used was often, some of it was low land and swampy. It was not pretty. It was not used for farming. It was too wet. And then there were some dry upland areas that were also kind of been windswept, not good for farming. So what those people have in common, Andre the Note and Capability Brown, is that they were really hydrologists, that they were great at working with water. And both of them created these very noble landscapes. They'd often enlarge a swampy area into a water feature. And they had all types of tricks like that, where they would develop a beautiful architectural bridges, very regal, majestic, large bridges that would span. And one design trick, they would create the river so that it looked like it was a little wider and that it was squeezing to get underneath the bridge. And then in the Middle East, water is used. So there's places where water is a rarity. And so it's, it's very like in the Alhambra, there's places where it's so special and it's this, you know, it's this very, very valuable resource. The proper use of water, it can be like a real asset in a landscape and a, and a design. And if it's not, it can be swampy. <laughs> and even actually in the, the back bay of Boston, which Frederick Law Olmsted was involved in some of that civic planning, that was, the, that was exactly the same as Andre Leno and Capability Brown, that they were, these were these swampy, unlivable, you know, very, very unpleasant areas. It was not a pretty wetland. It was like a, an unappealing swamp. And that was turned into some areas were dredged, some areas were filled. And actually doing that thoughtfully can create habitat. And there can be ecological benefits to that. Perhaps in a future episode, we'll talk more about water features specifically. But what we're talking about with this introduction is really the management of water and the figuring out what to plant based on water needs 
and how to move water around to places it may not already be. And then managing that in a way that's ecologically sound, because although water has been precious (laughs) to every human being on the planet throughout the ages, there are some new stresses perhaps on the system that we need to be mindful of when we're planning our landscapes. If you're a new homeowner and you're taking a look at a a garden, what are some things you should know about basic irrigation as you come on the scene, whether you're putting it in for the first time or you're coming to a home that maybe has it installed? We have lots of interactions with people where it's, it's it may not be a new home, but but they're new to the home. And so they might be a new homeowner or they might have moved from another part of the country. And so an early question is in planning a garden and maintaining an existing landscape, do you have an irrigation system? And it's not necessarily good or bad to have one, but it's just some, it's a point that's important to know. And then finding the controller box that could be, in some cases, it's in the basement, in the garage. It could be physically attached to the house, which is probably the most common. And then finding out on some large estates or, or a, a municipal system, there could be hundreds and hundreds of zones that would be the rose garden might be three zones and then another area might be another zone. So finding sort of the scale of the irrigation system and then doing what this landscape contractor in New Jersey that I've worked with, his term, which I like, it calls it doing an irrigation audit, saying, what are we working with here? Is the system delivering an appropriate amount of water to the existing landscape? And you looked up a statistic about how to how many people, what percentage of people actually look at their water usage? Oh, right. So some of the, it's a lawn and landscape organization. I think it's Lawn and Landscape Magazine. People that responded to their survey, this is like, like a recent survey, about 80% of respondents do not track their water use. So they're just, whatever's being used, it's used. And whether it's use inside the house or the landscape or at the municipal civic level, leaks or waste account for a, a, a very big percentage. So the having some oversight, is this working? Is it appropriate? Is important. So you've, you've done your irrigation audit. Does every landscape need irrigation and do irrigation requirements change in the landscape over time? How does that tend to work? So we're talking not just about pouring water indiscriminately in an area, but thinking of the plants specifically that are going to need the water. How does that work as the garden matures? The overarching sort of concepts with irrigation, as I understand them, (laughs) have a green lawn, which is not, I'm not saying that's good or bad. To have a green lawn in many climates, it requires irrigation during the hot, dry months of the year, whatever that would, in some climates, it's longer than others. So lawn's natural state Its natural life cycle is to go dormant when it gets very hot and turns brown and it's not, the roots are not dead. And then when it, as it cools down, like in this part of the country in North America around September, it starts cooling down and there's more air, there's more water and it'll just turn green again. So ornamental grasses might be a good example of like the more natural life cycle of grasses because they have sort of like a color change. And because they're ornamental, it's, it's acceptable to let them kind of go silver or gold. And then they spring back <laughs> when the time is right. Right. And yeah. That's a great distinction. So turf grasses are generally cool season grasses. So they grow when the season's cool. So when you're in, like when we spend time in, in the southern U.S., it's above freezing most of the time. It's above 32 Fahrenheit. Most of the, it's rare that it gets below that. So those lawns are always green. They never, and with irrigation, they're always green. 
So that would be a cool season grass without irrigation. They would turn brown in the summer. And then what's now commonly termed ornamental grasses, which would be 12 inches tall, so two feet tall, six feet tall. Those are warm season grasses. So those more or less only grow when it's warm. And when it's cool, they look dead or they appear dormant. And so our goal is to not have that green lawn ever look like it's going dormant despite the season. Right. So that's a tough one. Are there some, we couldn't possibly cover every type of native planting plan for every region out there in the (laughs) the short time we have, but am I on the right track that something like the word native might be associated with plants that are going to be adapted to the water conditions of your location? Right. You're exactly right. And when you look up uh, here in in the United States, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, they have uh, a program called WaterSense. And they come right out in the, in the introduction saying native plants are, are advisable. They, they tend to be adapted to the local conditions. Great. And we'll link to some resources in the show notes. One thing that I know we often help our own clients with is when plants go in, they need more water. And that maybe you can tell us if that changes over time, but the amount of watering required for new plantings is, I think beyond what most of us would expect. So if there's a, a decent rain goes through, folks might stop watering and we're like, no, 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 you got right. <laughs> keep up with the watering plan. Can you tell us a little bit about irrigation for new plants? Okay, great question. So you did the audit, you got a sense of, is this what's needed or what's not needed? For new plantings, it depends on the scale. If it's a smaller garden, it's reasonable to hand water and you don't need an irrigation system. And so if it's, a, if it's let's say within half an hour, you could water that garden. That might be enough. But for typical projects we work on, there is an irrigation system. But half an hour every day of the week? Not necessarily. So it's like, like the overarching principle is to water deeply, but less frequently. So you're, so that you're encouraging the roots, whether it's from the smallest roots, which would be grass generally, those are only a couple inches deep, to the largest plant, generally a shade tree, an oak, a maple, a beech, and those roots... They don't actually go that deep. Maybe 18 inches would be about the deepest, but they horizontally, they go, they can go the same height as the tree. The tree is 25 feet tall. They could go 25 feet or more from the tree. So for whatever reason, I don't have the patience for watering. It can be very meditative, but I'm usually like, I got to cook dinner. I got to go. So I'm likely to cut it short. Is there a way to tell that you've done enough watering, that it's gone deep enough? You haven't just sort of sprinkled the surface like right, I might do. We often hand out a watering meter to, like a, to someone that's the recipient of a new garden. <laughs> and that looks like a thermometer with a, with a long metal probe. And that just gets, if there's a, let's say you planted a nice new white oak tree and near the base of the tree, you stick this meter in, which is probably about like a 10 inches. And then there's a gauge and it'll spring to life. It'll, it'll say wet, dry, medium. That's pretty accurate. When it rains, the, the perception, oh boy, there was a downpour for six hours today. If you went in your backyard and pulled the soil away or the mulch away from a plant, it's often the only, only one, like the first inch or so of the soil is often, that's the only thing that's wet. So it has to rain. If you stood at, at that same white oak tree and watered it, it might only be two minutes, let's say, with a hose to really soak, not just the immediate area, but the, the greater vicinity of that new tree. Just those two minutes, the amount of water, let's say it's, I'm going to guess, 30, 30 gallons of water you're getting on that tree. 
that would be the equivalent of it raining for like three or four days straight. Wow. And that brings up kind of another question, which is, and I wonder if you would do this at the same time you're doing the irrigation audit, should you be doing somehow like a runoff audit or trying to figure out how, because we talked about how you might have, (laughs) if you have an estate, you might have swampy areas and high areas, but even if you have a normal yard, surely you've got some low areas and some higher areas and maybe the water, even if it's supposed to be coming out of the system the same way. I don't know if the irrigation installers are also mindful of like grading and drainage and runoff. Mm -hmm. Is that, so how does that work? That's a great question, right? So those really, if it's, I guess part of a a landscape design would be, that would be part of the site analysis. What are the grades? Is there a low spot? And I've run into that even with doing very careful work where depending on the soil type, there's times where the water really runs off like across lawn. Lawn is not that pervious. So water, if it's raining very hard or if there's irrigation, the water will travel right across the surface of those lawn roots. So it, it can flood an area can become excessively wet. So having a sort of a, whether it's it's a walkthrough with an irrigation professional, a landscape professional, and more or less troubleshooting. And there's areas like within irrigation where irrigation system might be irrigating the house or a fence and you get mildew or, or it could cause a deck to rot. So, and that's good to do annually as plants grow and the height of the plants change. And so they might, the plants can quickly outgrow the irrigation system. So if you have a low-lying area that's collecting water, you don't necessarily need to regrade. There's something you can do instead, which I think has to do with what you plant in those areas. There are plants that will take up water. Right, that popular term, a rain rain garden. You can collect the water. There could be a cistern. There's all types of... A rain garden is just as simple as if you have a low-lying spot, it could be planted with plants which are water-loving. Not necessarily plants that, like a true wetland plant, needs to stay wet all the time. It'd be like a cardinal flower, which is also called a lobelia. There are some plants that are going to struggle if it's not consistently wet. A rain garden would more or less be plants which could sustain being inundated by water and then also be fine when it's, when it's not wet. And we've actually seen rain gardens more and more in our travels in municipal areas. Like mm-hmm. cities are using them to handle runoff. Most city surfaces are also impervious. I think sidewalks right. and streets. Well, like a great, I mean, there's a question like, why does it matter to conserve your, you know, plenty of people realize why it matters, but some people would question why conserve water? There's so much water where we live. There's not a shortage. <laughs> so even in parts of the world where there is plenty of water, the excessive runoff. So if you're irrigating an area, some of that water is running off and it's finding its way into the local watershed. And so it's picking up different types of pollution, whether it's from, from pets, animals, automobiles, it's picking up fertilizers that are applied to the lawn. And so that's going into the water system and that can create algae and other types of pollution. So it's even in areas with plenty of water, being mindful, excessive water from a landscape does do harm. And it, and it, it costs the municipalities money, that water's polluted, and it needs more treatment. I was trying to keep house plants alive, and I didn't realize that you could overwater house plants <laughs> until my mom, the biologist and soon-to-be master gardener, pointed that out to me. So, what does that look like in the landscape if your irrigation is calibrated too extreme and you're watering things that shouldn't be watered? How do you know that that's the issue? A pretty good guideline: if the leaves of the plant 
are not getting enough water, they generally turn brown from the edges. So they're starting to dry out. You can see that. If a plant's getting too much water, the leaves, sometimes they get spots. They can start to turn black. And so it would not be from the edges, though. It can be a little confusing. When a plant's getting too much water, it can look like it's dry. So if you're not sure, it's common to use mulch, a shredded bark mulch, or different parts of the world. In Texas, they use crushed pecans <laughs> as a mulch. So it's often, with a new garden, there's often some type of mulch, even gravel is used. So to pull away, if there's a surface layer of something, and then physically get down to the soil and depress it with your fingers and see, is it squishy? And then the soil type is very important too. Like we've talked about in previous episodes, if it's clay, I mean, I've seen that. I remember a summer internship, we working for a landscape company in Rochester, New York, and we planted a magnolia tree. It was a new development. The soil, in some cases, it's clay. And so for the new development, houses constructed, maybe there's excess clay soil that's used in the landscape, which is graded. And it's when the landscape contractors, they're often the last to do the work. When you're digging a hole, if there's standing water in the hole, that's really bad news if it's not freely draining. So being mindful of that, that's sort of part of the design process. And there are plants, bald cypress, darn redwood, tupelo tree. There's plenty of trees that love more like what they call wet feet, which could, to a good extent, that could handle that. Now, there are all kinds of apps for running things in your home, like turning on the heat, making sure the lights are on when you get home, your home security system. And, and I suppose there are apps for turning on your sprinkler system in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Do you find those useful? Do you recommend people have those and use them? I've seen it used well. Like here in, in the Hudson Valley, there's estates we've worked on where the uh, property superintendent, property manager has used those. And it can be very effective. And that even if they're not on the site, at that moment, they're watching the weather, they can adjust, they can fine tune it where you're you know, using very large volumes of water to keep turf when you have dozens and dozens or maybe even hundreds of acres. That would be an example where it does work well, where it's like a very experienced landscape professional that knows the site and that the system's properly calibrated. Where I've seen it backfire is where a well-meaning, enthusiastic homeowner has the app. I mean, it's, it's efficient, but if you don't know, it's a, it's a tool. So if you're, if you're, there's a property in Connecticut where some homes are seasonal. And so the irrigation might be a set for the summer and the homeowners are not there in the summer. Or they might only be there in the summer. And so without any oversight and using the app to adjust it, I've seen things you know cause horrible problems where it was watering every day all the plants excessively and then creating fungus on a ligustrum hedge and the boxwood roots got too much water in a way doing nothing if the landscape is established doing nothing is probably safer than over irrigating now if it's a new landscape like bringing a baby home from the hospital it needs constant oversight where it's every day or two you're checking is this is it getting the right amount of water and then after really the first sort of 10 days two weeks after a garden's planted are critical to make sure that the that they're getting enough water and then it's once a week or so checking on it at least i like to and then after that first season if it's a well-designed garden and the plants are the right plant for the right place and, and they're sited properly in the property where the wet spots are the wet plants and vice versa. After that first season, the plants more or less ought to 
ought to be self-sufficient. The exceptions would be for lawn, if you want that grass to be green during during the high temps in the summer. And so the lawn, if you have it, might be getting water, and yet the plants next to the lawn are not necessarily water-loving plants. All right, we've seen that problem with we work on lots of gardens where boxwood are one of the main features, the cloud prune boxwood, and it's especially some of the homo, the English clients. The American style of mulching and edging is not appealing. And so having, if it's a, whether it's a, a Japanese holly, a boxwood, another plant, and so having that just grow down to the ground. And so the, the lawn adjacent to that is often irrigated right up to the edge or it might burn. And so the, the box with the other plants, can, the leaves will turn yellow because you're getting too much water. I find that, that that's a productive meeting, having the client, the landscape contractor who handles the irrigation and myself and, you know, and, and troubleshooting and saying, well, the lawn might burn a little here, but the boxwood or the other plant will get larger and it'll be beautiful and green. That might be a reasonable approach instead of having the perfect lawn, which is causing problems for the other plants. I've seen the unfortunate, (laughs) every once in a while, you'll see like a sprinkler head that's just sort of like spraying into the air or the sprinkler seemed to like be on at at an odd time. I think it sounds to me like the lesson is that even though we have these automated watering systems, it benefits us and the landscape to be mindful and to really pay attention and make sure we're not watering when it's also raining just because we can, you know, we can put it sort of set it on autopilot and forget about it, but that's not certainly what we would advocate. And I'm sure our listeners are also mindful in that way. Is there a particular time of day that it's beneficial to water? If, if anyone's relatively new to the topic? Oh, good question. When you look up, when you research, water waste from irrigation, it's often through evaporation and wind. So when does that occur? Well, during daylight hours, it's often windier than at night in many climates. And when the sun is out, there's, there's more evaporation. So, so ideally watering before daybreak or at daybreak early in the morning. So let's say between 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. And then in, in many climates, the wind starts to pick up. But there starts to become a breeze sometime after that, 7, 8 in the morning. Now, if you water in the evening, in some very hot climates, it's necessary to water, like, let's say, 4 in the afternoon to keep certain types of plants. Some plants might need it twice a day. If you're in a golf course setting or a nursery setting, with, uh, but more or less watering in the evening is generally not a good practice because that plant is sitting there in wet feet, more or less. So then fungus, insects. It could cause problems. And it's going to be wet until the sun comes up again, which is the enemy. (laughs) And if we wanted to, or in some cases, my home state, for example, of California, if we need to go almost water less, is that a possibility? Can you have like a a landscape that's going to require no water at all? There's a term zero escaping. So that's more or less designing a landscape that does not need that needs no supplemental irrigation, no supplemental watering, and that whatever Mother Nature provides, that that's sufficient. Now, is that true when it goes in, or do you still have to do a little bit of watering to get it established? In my experience, at, like at planting time, it would need to be watered, it, depending on the soil. But let's say you're in California or in the Southwest, I mean, there are times a year where there is rainfall. And so that would be 
you planted at that time of year, you might not need to do any any supplemental watering. Is there anything else you wanted to share with us about this topic that we haven't already covered? Just water use in general. It was was interesting. You know, people like the average household in the US uses about 300 gallons a day. How that breaks down, there's the landscape use and then, you know, various household uses. Depending on the climate, the outdoor water use can be very significant. It can be 30%, 50% in some of the the driest states in the US, it's like 60%, like in the Southwest. And so those areas where there's water shortages, the water often travels a big distance. Is it possible to use water from the home in a way on your on your landscape? Oh, sure. So we just sort of re- be recycling or reusing water that you're using in the home? It's popular rain barrels. Uh, there's, I mean, something which is a little more sophisticated would be a cistern where I've worked with you know, some, some large estates that were being renovated with a new homeowner and they were really planning their water use. They were saying, we're going to have this very large house and guest house and other houses, all that runoff from those roofs are going to be captured and go into a cistern. And then just with a simple pump. What uh, about something like, this might sound gross, but old dishwater, or is that not likely, is that not healthy for the plants? In the U.S., I haven't come across it that much, but in Europe, which is often a little more innovative in some areas than the U.S., you would call that gray water. So there are, you know, using gray water. Remember, I had a friend in Brooklyn. They would use gray water. Like they had a terrace uh, with planters, and they would, they would water uh, plants that way. As long as you're not going to consume it, it's possible to use gray water. And there's all kinds of guidelines on that. Great. So maybe we'll link to some resources in the show notes. As usual, we would love to hear from our listeners from all over to tell us what topics are of interest to them. We, if we don't know about it, we like to research it. And we certainly love any excuse to come visit and check stuff out. You can always follow us on our Twitter at in underscore landscape. You'll see new episodes pop up there. Uh, we should be on all the major podcast carriers by now. And of course, we welcome feedback at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We also have a lot of great images to accompany some of the conversation over at our Instagram account, which is King Garden Inc. So that's our landscape design company. The podcast, of course, is in the landscape. And so you can usually find us under either of those two names. Anything else you wanted to share with us today? There were lots of good resources, and depending on the country, the state that you're in. But the EPA here in the United States, Environmental Protection Agency, this Water Sense program, lots of great suggestions. And the USGS in here in the US also had great suggestions where it's some of the things have their low cost, no cost, some of it's common sense. And so just finding how you can apply those principles, I guess, no matter what scale the landscape. Great. So we'll go ahead and link to those in the show notes. And again, uh, if you ever want to comment with the resources from your own location that other listeners might be interested in, you can, you can do that if you want to comment as well. And we certainly welcome the feedback. So that's all we have for today. We look forward to recording episode number six and getting that out there on mm-hmm. the air. And thank you all so much for tuning in and listening. It really means a lot to, to see our listeners and we would love to hear from you. Any other thoughts for today? Go out there and have a nice cold glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's great. So we'll see you here next time on In the Landscape. Bye-bye. Thank you.